Rethink Retail, the evolution of retail in today's connected world. Welcome to the Rethink Retail Show, your source for the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. Join host Julia Raymond, Global Director of Research at Valtech, a global digital agency focused on strategy and transformation in retail, as she explores the most recent trends and innovations in commerce. This episode of Rethink Retail, sponsored by Valtech, where experiences are engineered. Hi, for today's episode of Rethink Retail, I'm joined by my guest, David Berliner. David currently leads BDO's business restructuring and turnaround services practice and lends his insight to firm's retail and consumer products advisory services division. He brings over 25 years of experience in financial advisory services, focused on retail, manufacturing, distribution, and services industries. David, will you kick us off by telling a bit more about yourself and your background in the retail industry? Sure. Hi, everybody. For the past 22 years, I've been a member of BDO's Business Restructuring Services Group. The focus of our work is on distressed businesses. I've been involved in numerous bankruptcy and workout situations representing unsecured and secured creditors as well as debtors. And over the years, I've been involved in various retail bankruptcy cases. A few of them include Sports Authority, Hastings Entertainment, Fredericks of Hollywood, Fresh and Easy, Circuit City, Quiznos, Furniture Brands, Borders, Books, Baker's Footwear, Jackson Hewitt, Ultimate Electronics, Against All Odds, KB Toys, Filene's Basement, Riley Milner, and Montgomery Ward. I've also authored various articles and blog posts on bankruptcy issues in the retail industry. I'm also an author of BDO's biannual Retail in the Red Bankruptcy Update, which provides an overview of U.S. retail bankruptcies and store closures. That's excellent. And that is quite a laundry list of brands like Sports Authorities, Borders, KB Toys are some of the ones I heard you say. So really excited to have you on the show today and talk about that because store closures are definitely top of mind. But, um, you know, there's also a lot of positive outcomes that we're seeing starting to develop and going into the new decade. So Thanks for joining. Sure. The first thing I want to talk about, so you mentioned you are the author of BDO's annual report on store closures, and you released a report earlier this year revealing that retail bankruptcies and store closures have accelerated this year compared to 2018, and it tied the increase of this year's bankruptcies to actually 2018's holiday shopping season, noting that 2018 saw the weakest performance in sales since December 2009. So can you expand a bit on these findings? How did a poor holiday shopping season push retailers like Payless, for example, into bankruptcy? Was 2018 the last straw for a few struggling retailers? Sure. So the 2018 holiday season failed to meet expectations, primarily because of what happened in the month of December. In that month alone, retail sales dropped 1.6% from the prior month. So up to that Mm. point through November, It was actually looking very good, and then it kind of fell off uh, very suddenly. The poor December sales performance then contributed to about 10 retailers that filed for bankruptcy in the first quarter of 2019. And as you mentioned, that included Payless, also included Gymboree and uh, Charlotte Russe. And the bankruptcies of just those three retailers, just those three, led to the closure this year of about 3,700 stores. Mm. Most of these retailers were already struggling heading into the holiday season last year. And what happened was they just didn't have the financial resources to weather that poor December. 
So for example, you mentioned Payless. They first filed for bankruptcy back in April 2017. And then they emerged from bankruptcy August of 17. And then they filed again this February of 19. So just a little under um, two years, about a year and a half later, they filed again. And the second time was a liquidation. So clearly, you know, that was kind of their last straw. They didn't have a lot of room for error when they emerged. Also, Jimboree, just like Payless, they filed for bankruptcy the first time in June of 17. They emerged from bankruptcy in September, just a few months later. And then they filed again in January of 2019. So just a little over a year later. And again, as you know, they primarily liquidated and sold their brands off in bankruptcy. So for a lot of the struggling retailers, just coming out of bankruptcy isn't enough. They don't always have enough financial breathing room to weather sudden downturns. And I think that's what happened to a lot of these based on last year's results. Absolutely. And like you said, coming out of bankruptcy isn't always enough. And there was another report from CoreSight Research, and they predicted over 12,000 stores would be closed this year. And IHL Group reported that one for every retail store that closed this year, for every one, there were five new stores on average that opened their doors, but most of these were in the convenience category. So from your perspective, why are categories like apparel seeing so many closures and then we have convenience stores and discounters just cutting ribbons left and right? All right. So I think there's a couple of things going on in terms of apparel that you mentioned having so many closures. I think the simple reason is the U.S. just has too many brick and mortar stores. Mm -hmm. We have much more retail square footage per capita than any other country, any other industrialized country. So for example, the U.S. still has about 23 square feet of retail space for every person. And other developed countries have a lot less. So Canada, the next closest to us is 16. And then it drops down considerably. The UK, five. Germany, between four and five. And France, four. And again, the US has 23. That's huge. When you look at retail and categories like apparel, they've seen the bulk of the store closures that we've been talking about. And I think there are several things that are going on, particularly with apparel. Consumers are simply buying less apparel than they did in prior years. The trend has been away from durable clothing to more disposable clothing, which is also cheaper. And therefore, there's a lot less of a need for more formal attire than there used to be and more desire to consume other things. So casual Friday has now morphed into everyday business casual. So fewer and fewer employees need a separate wardrobe for work. Mm -hmm. And if you look at U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics information, you go back 30 to 40 years, 1977 and 1987, households spent about 6% of their spending on apparel. Fast forward 30 to 40 years in 2017, the last time they did the study, that was down to 3.1%. So that's a 50% drop in three to four decades. So, you know, people are just buying a lot less apparel these days. And then other reasons, I think about 35% of apparel sales are now happening online. And online sales of apparel are actually growing about 3 to 4% per year. That's taking a sales away from the brick and mortar apparel stores. Then mall traffic, because those sales are decreasing, mall traffic's declining, and many of these mall-based retailers are dependent on the overall tenant mix of the mall for their sales. So as the number of customers shopping goes down, there are fewer sales, stores start to go out of business, and then the cycle just continues. 
Um, a lot of these stores are becoming redundant, so there's not much of a difference between a lot of the specialty apparel stores anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think the other factor is a lot of the stores are just too big. Now that you have the internet and the ability to have good ship to consumers so quickly, you don't need as much inventory in the stores as you did years ago when a lot of these malls were built before there was the internet and this quick shopping. Another interesting thing is um, on the size of the stores being too big, you look at Target, you mentioned convenience stores and discounters. So Target has found success with its small format concept, mm-hmm. uh, which has created an inroad for them in the dense urban markets, the cities where they haven't been before, and also near college campuses. And they just announced that you know they're opening about 30 of these small format stores per year because they deliver strong financial results for the company. They show much higher than average sales productivity than their larger format stores and meaningfully higher gross margin rates. I think that's telling as well. Absolutely. And you made a a bunch of really great points that explain some of these factors of with store closings. And I think it's interesting because like you said, stores are changing, Target's finding a lot of success with their smaller format stores opening, I think you said 30 next year. That's quite a few. And I know they just opened, I think their 10th store in the Manhattan area, a small format. So it's interesting to see how these new formats are being rolled out. And I, I wanted to ask you because we had uh, the retail doctor on our rundown podcast on December 9th, and he said in regards to this year's Black Friday, Cyber Monday promotion, you know, he said, what's a winner? I'm sorry, I gave 60% off and I'm a winner. And he was speaking sort of to the fact that retailers can't rely on on offering the biggest discounts and competing with retail giants like Walmart or Amazon or probably even Macy's because eventually they'll kind of seal their own fate. So when it comes to offering great online discounts and being more of a traditional brick and mortar retailer, how do you see them competing if not by discount? Do you agree with this sentiment? Yeah, I think you know that that's part of what's hurting some of these brick and mortar retailers. And I think the hardest hit ones are going to be those, again, that primarily sell apparel. And that's a lot of those are these mall-based specialty stores and the department stores that you know we've been reading about struggling a bit. The retailers that have had the most store closings in, in the first half of this year were apparel specialty stores. And they mm-hmm. accounted for about 36% of the total closures. That's up from 14% in 2018. And footwear retailers accounted for about 28% of the closures. A lot of that was pay less. And that was up from 8% in 2018. In addition to that, you know, there was just an announcement yesterday, a smaller retailer, RTW Headwinds, formerly known as New York and Company. They just announced they're going to close 30 stores in the coming weeks following disappointing third quarter results. Hmm. They said they had a 5% net sales decline and a 4% decrease in comp store sales. You know, and a lot of that is um, because they can't lower their price to compete with the online merchants who have much lower costs, don't have stores, they can get their products sometimes cheaper than the, the brick and mortar retailers. And then other than the apparel, I think we're also seeing it in uh, some of the home goods stores. So for example, um, Pier 1 and Bed Bath & Beyond. Pier 1 recently reported their comp store sales were down 12.6% in the second quarter, and they reported a very sizable loss. So I think e-commerce is also taking some of these sales. So years ago, these stores didn't have to worry about e-commerce. They got all the sales, but now they have to share some of the sales with the e-commerce. Like we just said before, the the poor performance by these apparel and the uh, mall-based 
a home goods stores like Pier One, you know, are bad news for these malls in the U.S. where traffic is declining. That's already undermining other existing brick and mortar stores at the mall. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's likely accelerating this vicious cycle of um, further store closing. So like we've seen when a mall loses an anchor, like a Macy's or a Sears or a JCPenney, it really hurts the tenants of that mall and that that side of the mall where the department stores were located. In addition, I think what we're seeing is the foot traffic in many of the malls is just not nearly as productive as it used to be, meaning people would go to the malls years ago and and they would buy stuff and take it home with them. And now we're not seeing the same level of productivity. So um, that's part of the reason why I think many more of these retailers are carefully looking at their portfolios and trying to reduce the number of stores to get them more in line with the other Western industrialized countries. And then the other thing we're seeing is that it's not just all retail doing bad. In the first half of the year, we saw that earnings actually rose for retailers that were outside these malls, but dropped almost 29% for some mall-based retailers. And this just is further support for why mall-based retailers are continuing to rationalize and close stores while say, convenience stores and discounters are are actually adding stores. Mm -hmm. And would you say you're in the camp that's predicting malls will be a thing of the past? Or would you, is that too extreme? It's too extreme. I think we just have too many malls, just like we have too many stores. I think there's 1,200 malls in the U.S. right now. Many of them were built years ago and don't have the amenities of some of the newer or class A malls. So I think what we're going to see is survival of the fittest. We're going to see the stronger malls that have entertainment and other offerings continue to succeed, but the older malls that you know are losing um, key tenants are either going to have to reinvent themselves and find other tenants other than retailers to add to their mix, or they're going to have to close and uh, and move into something else. We're also seeing consumers more willing to shop out of the malls. That's one of the reasons why these discount stores are doing so well. And um, in particular, if you look at the discount segment, Dollar General, Dollar Tree, they've been expanding rapidly and posting very strong sales results. So while we've been talking about store closings, those two alone have added almost a thousand stores this year. And I think one of the reasons why they're so successful is they really don't have internet competition. You know, those mm. kind of stores, it's kind of like a treasure hunt experience, you know, they can offer that because you really can't replicate that on e-commerce because the average ticket prices for their stuff is under $10 or, 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 or that area. So it's just not economical for an e-commerce vendor to compete given the cost of shipping. So they've kind of uh, come up in their niches, um, almost an area where the e-commerce vendors can't tack them. Um, so right. when you look at their results, Dollar General you know, reported that it had its best customer traffic and same store sales increases the third quarter this year in five years. They've been able to, to handle the increased tariff as well because they have a very diversified um, supply chain and good cost control. And Dollar Tree, which is the one who acquired Family Dollar, they've been accelerating the optimization of those Family Dollar stores both by closing some of the poor ones and then re-entering them to Dollar Tree. So I do think that segment's going to continue to grow. And that includes, you know, what we talked about before, Target with these uh, smaller format stores and uh, 
just the other discounters continuing to do well at the expense of the mall-based stores. Mm -hmm. And I love your example there about the Dollar General and stores that are similar not having a lot of e-commerce competition simply because it's not viable versus the more macro view of just, you know, the rise of the have and the have nots and people looking for the discounts. So that's interesting because I think that is a really great point. (laughs) You're not going to buy Dollar General items online. So I haven't heard that one as much. And from your perspective, I wanted to ask, is there any example that you can share of a retailer that was financially stressed that successfully restructured to avoid liquidation? Because we're seeing so many things going on. I mean, uh, just with the sale of Barney's recently and the plans that uh, have been announced for for that. So what's a positive example? <laughs> there's Obviously, there's been a lot of filings of retailers uh, over the last few years. And as we discussed a, a little while ago, a couple of them, uh, like Payless and Gymboree, were so-called Chapter 22s when they filed first a couple of years ago and then the second time filed to liquidate. But there, there are other stories of uh, successful restructurings. There's just not as many as there used to be. One of the examples so far where uh, a successful restructuring was Mattress Firm. I don't know if you know that company well, but prior to the bankruptcy case earlier this year, that company had expanded rapidly. They had made a lot of acquisitions uh, since 2011. They, uh, back in 2011, they bought 236 mattress giant stores. Then in 2014, they bought 131 back-to-bed stores. 2015, 314 sleep train stores. And then in 2016, the big one, they bought over 1,000 sleepy stores. Mm. They had significantly expanded their number of stores. Obviously, they took on a significant amount of debt. And then they were purchased by a South African retail holding company called Steinhoff International for $3.8 billion back in 16. So at that point, they then had billions of dollars in intercompany debt on their balance sheet, and they were struggling to secure additional financing to support this now massive operation with all these stores. So they ended up filing for bankruptcy in October of 2018, so just about a year ago. And they blamed their financial troubles on this aggressive rollout strategy we were just talking about, where they purchased these other mattress chains, and then they rebranded those stores as mattress firm. Mm -hmm. And that resulted in, in some cases, because of the way they did this, they had lots of stores that were too close together. And in some cases, they actually had stores right across the street from each other. <laughs> like a Starbucks, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and these are mattresses. So these are not things you buy every day like coffee. So you know that was a real problem. So again, they filed in October of 18, October 5th to be exact. And they confirmed a bankruptcy reorganization plan just about 45 days later on November 16th. And the plan went effective five days later on November 21st. And what was this plan? Well, the plan provided that it would fully repay its term loan and its all its unsecured debt, that it would close 700 stores, because again, it had too many stores too close together and after the acquisitions. And then the other interesting aspect was the owner, Steinhoff, agreed to forego a recovery on its intercompany debt. So with that, Mattress Firm made it through Chapter 11 in five weeks. They confirmed this prepackaged plan of reorganization with their creditors and their owner. You know, they closed 700 of their 3,300 stores. They wiped out 
$3.1 billion in intercompany debt. And they also provided the company with $525 million exit facility to help pay for some of the debts they were repaying and to fund the company. So in summary, they were able to negotiate a viable restructuring plan with their owner, the secured and unsecured creditors, and they used the bankruptcy process to close about 20% of their stores. So they got it down to a manageable store base. And then they secured some financing to enable them to succeed going forward. So, you know, is it a guarantee that it won't be a chapter 22? No, but at least they gave themselves a chance to succeed post-filing. So I think that would be, you know, an example of a um, a recent success, at least so far. I would be curious to know how many of those 700 stores were ones that were pre-existing or ones that they acquired since they started an aggressive acquisition plan in 2011, I think you said. Yeah. That I don't know, but um, my suspicion is as they bought these overlapping chains, that's what created some of that problem. So, you Mm -hmm. know, most likely it was some combination of that. And, you know, bankruptcy has a very favorable provision on store closures in terms of the lease cost. So there is a provision in the bankruptcy code that caps the lease liability to effectively one year which is a huge reduction for retailers that may have long-term leases. You know, outside of bankruptcy, you'd be liable for the entire term of the lease. But Mm -hmm. with the bankruptcy filing, it's effectively limited to about a year. So that is one of the advantages to taking advantage of bankruptcy for a retailer is you can get out of some of these leases that you determined are, are onerous or not performing well and not get stuck with a huge liability. So you know, that probably also helped them by reducing their footprint to more of a right size footprint and not having that huge cost to bear as well. Sure. Yes, that's a great example with Mattress Firm. So I'm excited to see where 2020 and beyond takes them. And you you brought up leases. So I wanted to ask, there's been a lot of discussion around leases and agreements moving away from being simply transactional. So how is the conversation changing when we talk about retail real estate? There's a couple of things going on. One is the accounting standards are changing for the way leases are classified on the balance sheets. Mm. So previously, leases were not reflected. The lease liability was not reflected on the face of the balance sheet as a liability. It was what's called an off-balance sheet liability. The only way you could see it on financial statements was in the footnote disclosure. So when you looked at a retailer's balance sheet, all those potentially millions of dollars of lease liabilities weren't included in the liabilities. That is now changing. It's already went into effect for public companies and for private companies, it's soon to go into effect. So what that does then is it requires the liability to be on the balance sheet. You also get to put a corresponding asset on the balance sheet to reflect the right to use of that asset, meaning, you know, if that asset is productive store, you're, you're going to get the profits that that lease generates. So it's not just the liability, you also put a corresponding asset on the books. But that changes the thinking a little bit for companies with loans and, and are uh, based on various financial metrics tied to the financial statements. So that's one aspect. I think the other aspect is to try to avoid these long-term leases with all the changes going on in uh, brick and mortar. And people are, are realizing that you know there's not as much of an advantage as there might have been years ago to uh, 
tying up on very long-term leases. You know, the department stores years ago would have up to a hundred year lease or wow. many big tenants would have 20 years or more with options. So today you're seeing many more leases that are more like five years and even less. And we're also seeing a, a renewal of this pop-up store phenomenon where these empty storefronts, landlords are willing to rent them out for short periods of time, the so-called pop-up concept, in order to attract tenants to the malls and, and spaces to provide the foot traffic. And it adds a sense of excitement for customers as they come through. So that's some of the the changes that we're seeing. And I think that those kind of things will continue. Mm-hmm. Those are two good points. You said the lease liability, the changes with lease liabilities on the uh, on the balance sheet for the landlords. Yeah. And the Barneys, if you're uh, following that bankruptcy as an example, their Madison Avenue location in New York, now that it's been acquired, and that was, you mentioned it before, was kind of uh, a bad result for Barneys in that they weren't able to really get a buyer that was looking to continue the company as a going concern. And they have basically sold their intellectual property to a company that's not really interested in running the store. So most of the mm-hmm. stores are going to close. But in this Madison Avenue store, they're planning to evolve it into a pop-up retail experience. And they're hoping to bring together kind of an electric mix of boutiques, art and cultural installations and other exhibits into this place to try to create excitement and uh, make it a destination for customers to want to go. So it'll be interesting to see you know, how that works out. Oh, very interesting. And if they actually will move forward with having a Barney's branded pop-up inside of Saks, which I think was mentioned as a possible plan. And, you know, I, I've always thought this pop-up concept was very interesting because you take Halloween as an example, and you see around Halloween, the classic pop-ups where you have these stores that open usually right after Labor Day, and they sell Halloween costumes and Halloween decorations right through October 31st, and then they shut down. These are businesses that you know, almost all their sales occur in that two months of the year. And by having a pop-up, they're not paying rent and employee costs for all the other months, yet they can capture virtually all their sales in that two-month period. So it's a very interesting concept for a product that's sold very seasonally and um, doesn't really require you to be selling that product all year round. Sure, that's a great example. And it's like Cyber Monday is the big day for a lot of e-commerce companies, you know. I think it was 300, almost 350% more sales occurred on that single day than any other day for most e-commerce retailers this year. So it's an interesting thing. So it sounds like you are on board with the pop-ups. Yeah, I think it's a, you know it's a way to use some of the excess space. I think if you had the ability to rotate vendors, almost like there used to be years ago in the malls where they had the different carts in the hallways, that's kind mm-hmm. of what these are where you, you, know, you would have... Uh, temporary things for a few months and it would add some excitement and change. So I think that is something it brings. It also enables retailers to test out a location. So if it turns out that's just a really good location, then they negotiate to stay longer. So they're not committing first to building the store and then finding out that location doesn't work, which I've seen in many of the retail cases uh, I've done over the years where companies have expanded into locations that they thought were going to be big hits and they turned out to be just the opposite. Mm-hmm. That could be a, a, a huge financial burden then because you've now signed a long-term lease. You put all this construction money into fixing up the location to be the way you want it. And now you don't have the customer flow. 
So the pop-up allows you to, you don't usually spend a lot of money on the pop-up. You know, you usually just throw out some racks and get in there. But if you have a very good result, then that might justify um, going to a location in that area. So financially, potentially a smart move to test fast, fail fast, learn fast, all of the above. And I wanted to kick off the last question here with specific to your expertise area in the retail bankruptcy and restructuring landscape. What changes or trends do you see on the radar for 2020 and beyond this this new decade we're in? Well, I think we're going to see a continuation of what we've seen the last couple of years. We talked earlier that um, this year there were about 10 retail bankruptcies from companies that were mostly uh, exclusively apparel or footwear. And I think that includes Forever 21, Avenue, Barney's New York, as we just mentioned, Charming Charlie, Diesel, Payless, we talked about, Full Beauty Brands, Charlotte Roost, Jimbery. I think we're going to see a continuation of shakeout in certain of the retail areas like apparel and in certain other areas. Credit Risk Monitor, who monitors these bankruptcy filings, they've reported that they have 28 retailers that they have on their watch list, you know, or at risk for bankruptcy in mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. And half of those are companies that sell apparel. Wow. And apparel stores are one of the most distressed parts of retail since, again, as we mentioned before, it's really saturated with oversupply and overstored. So they're going to continue Department stores have been doing it. A lot of the specialty apparel stores have been doing it by closing stores. And then the other trend that's really hurting them is also what we talked about before. The consumers are spending less money now on apparel and apparel sales are are shifting online. And that has eroded the margins of the brick and mortar stores and contributes to this oversupply issue. Then, you know, the other emerging trends in apparel are out there that we're going to, I think, begin to see in the next few years. That is um, these trends toward rental, resale, and even sustainability, particularly among younger consumers, are adding further pressure to retailers. And again, the distressed retailers can't handle these kind of pressures. They just don't have the financial resources to deal with now, you know, rental, resale, sustainability type issues that these younger consumers are demanding. So in order to to continue to rationalize the number of stores, to bring it down to really what is the right number to have to be sustainable and profitable, I think we're going to continue to see retailers are likely to continue closing stores in 2020. I just don't think it'll be at the level we're seeing this year. I think it'll start to taper off, but we'll still see that and it's not going to be just the distressed retailers that are closing stores. I think we're also seeing strategic repositioning even by the stronger retailers. The healthy retailers are, are looking to maximize the profitability. And as they see stores beginning to underperform, you know, in the past, there was the incentive to keep stores open because that's what Wall Street wanted. But I think now people realize that it makes much more sense to close underperforming stores and put that financial capability elsewhere. And the problem, as we also discussed, is many of these stores that will close in the next couple of years are likely to be in B and C malls. So we're going to see more impact on on some of the shopping malls in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. Retailers that are struggling now going into 2020, just like we saw last year in the last December, they're going to have very little room to maneuver. If the recession were to occur or sales like last year slump off this December, 
then I think you'll see some bankruptcy filings in the first quarter next year because of that, if that's what happens. On the other hand, you know, the news coming out on the economy has been pretty positive. The jobs number just came out uh, yesterday or today that the U.S. created 224,000 new jobs in November, which is a, a good sign. Unemployment still very low. Interest rates are very low. Yes, we have the risk of tariffs, and we'll get to that in a minute. But other than that, the positive economic factors seem to indicate that a recession is unlikely in the next few months. But you know, retailers still need to be cautious about what might occur. And and you know, I think the ongoing trade disputes with China are likely to continue, and uh, they're going to continue to have an impact on the economy especially if the additional tariffs that are slated to go into effect uh, December 15th do occur. One thing that has been interesting this year, because of the tariff risk, a lot of retailers started bringing in inventory earlier. And so they really have a lot of high levels of inventory this year. Mm. Those goods don't sell. Mm. If if the holiday season does start to slack off and retailers are not able to sell uh, all that inventory, then what they're going to do, like every January, you're going to see big sales and that could have an impact on profitability if retailers you know, have to slash prices to move the goods. And obviously, if there's any additional tariffs, they're just going to have an, an adverse impact on, on the economy and particularly on retailers in 2020 as they feel the effects of the higher prices. One other interesting thing that I do think it have an impact in the next couple of years is the level of consumer debt. You know, while the economy is doing well, um, no one's really focusing on it right now, but uh, consumer debt is at an all-time record. It recently exceeded mm. $4 trillion for the first time ever, according to the Federal Reserve. Oh, wow. The largest component of that is mortgage debt, which reached, also reached the record in the first half of this year, $9.4 trillion. So, you have a lot of consumers that have you know, a lot of mortgage debt. And in addition to that, consumers are now spending about 10% of their disposable incomes on non-mortgage debts, including credit cards, auto loans, student loans. All these debts are tied to interest rates. So now that interest rates are low, people can afford it and it's not really putting a crimp on their wallets. But if interest rates do start to increase again, And that comes right out of their pocket. And now they have to pay the interest on that. And that takes money away from what could otherwise be spent on on retailers. I do think this rising debt burden could put pressure on consumers and ultimately lead to reduced spending. It's just a matter of when that might happen, depending upon the way interest rates go. So, you know, in short, looking forward to next year, I would expect to see some additional bankruptcy filings in the retail area, maybe not to the extent that we've seen you know, in 2019 in the first half where we had so many. So I think it'll be a slower pace, but I do think that this heightened uh, store closures will continue, but again, not at the pace you mentioned before, you know, targeting 12,000 closures this year, I think we'll see the number dip you know, next year but still be a reasonable number. Mm-hmm. And I love everything you just said. That was a great recap. You're, I think you said five or six different things, the shakeout of, of certain apparel retailers, especially footwear as well. And then you said there's 28 retailers on the watch list that might have potential bankruptcies. And then you mentioned the consumer behavior, buying less apparel, buying more online. 
and uh, some trends with the resale and rental market, and then just restructuring. Even companies that are doing well, you said, might consider some restructuring next year, which then brought us to trade disputes and some rising consumer debt concerns that could obviously impact retail in 2020 and beyond. So really good points clearly laid out. So thank you so much. It's been a joy to have you on the show, David. Thanks so much. And one last note, this is for our listeners who represent a retailer or a brand. If you would like to join a small panel of executives at our upcoming Rethink Retail Dinner in New York City this January, that's at the same time as NRF's big show, please reach out to me at julia at rethink.industries for more information or to be considered. I encourage you to apply and note that spots are limited. You've been listening to Rethink Retail. For all the latest news on commerce and trends, join the discussion, rethink.industries.com.